I'm Laura Harper-Lake. And I'm Sarah Reitzman, and you're you're listening listening to Creative Guts. Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to Creative Guts. On today's episode, we're talking with Jason Moon, the senior reporter and producer on New Hampshire Public Radio's document team. Jason's work includes Bear Brook, which we've talked about on the podcast before. Let's get right into this episode of Creative Guts with Jason Moon. Jason, thanks so much for being on Creative Guts. Thank you for having me. Your name might be a little bit familiar to some of our listeners because we've actually talked about Bear Book on the show before. Because we both listen mm-hmm. and we love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's awesome. Thank you. It was incredibly Thanks. well done. So before we get too deep into anything, will you just sort of introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about what you do? Sure. I'm Jason Moon. I'm a reporter with New Hampshire Public Radio. And for the last Four or five years now, I have worked on a team that is solely uh, dedicated to making um, documentary podcasts. So think long form narrative serialized stories that sort of began for me with Bear Brook. And since then, we've done a handful of other stories, including a second season of Bear Brook. And yeah, I'll stop there. Oh, that's perfect. And can you tell the listeners a little bit more about Documents specifically and some of the other podcasts that you've worked on? Sure, thanks. Uh, So that's the name of the team I work on, Document. It's really, it's just three people, really. It's me, my colleague, another reporter, uh, Lauren Chuljan, and our editor, Katie Culinary. And we have, ooh, I should know this, I think we've done four or five series about a a kind of array of topics, all of them quite serious, which we sometimes joke about. Like maybe next time we could do like a a story about high school sports or something (laughs) a little more light. (laughs) But we've done a number of stories about the criminal legal system and addiction. Uh, Most recently, my colleague Lauren hosted a, a really powerful series called The 13th Step, which was about a series of sexual misconduct allegations in an addiction treatment setting and about the broader culture of sexual harassment and assault that can permeate some addiction treatment communities. That was a big project for us. We spent the last, I think, two and a half to three years on it. We're currently being sued about it. We are, you know, very proud of it. It took a lot out of us. So that was a recent project. And then the the other most recent one was the second season of of Bear Brook, which is about a case of uh, a possible wrongful conviction in New Hampshire. A guy by the name of Jason Carroll, who is currently incarcerated for a 1988 murder that he confessed to as a 19-year-old. He's represented by the New England Innocence Project, and they are trying to get him released on the grounds that his confession was a false confession and that there's no other evidence that connects him to the crime. So those are two of the kind of, you know, light, breezy um, (laughs) (laughs) stories that we just finished. Uh, I want to ask about the reactions to especially Bear Brook, but I'm curious first if people were mad about the ending of season two of Bear Brook, because we don't find out the answer. Spoiler. Well, sorry. Well, it's an interesting question. I think people go into these stories with, depending on how you come into the story, creates different expectations for you. I think I think there are, are some people who are, I don't mean to be rude, but I think they want to be entertained yeah. by a true crime hmm. narrative. Right. And in that sense, I get it that it can be frustrating that there's not like a satisfying 
narrative conclusion to it, a tale. And, you know, we are using the tools of, you know, storytelling, the the tools of fiction in a way to draw people in, to make people care about these things. And so I get it that people are, are, can be frustrated that there's not like a satisfying ending. But on the other hand, like I can't make stuff up. Like I can't, this is, this, <laughs> this is, is real life. This is real life. Right. right. This is, um, so I, in that sense, I'm like, well, I don't, what do you want from me? You know, it's <laughs> just like, I'm not creating a story. I'm telling you about fact. I'm telling you about life. Yeah. And I don't know, in some sense, you know, the, the idea that there's not a like clear or neat resolution to these stories is sort of, it's sort of exactly the point in a way, or it, it drives home one thing that I want people to take away from, particularly the Bear Brook season two, is just like how messy and human these situations are, you know, murder trials and, and innocence claims and right. how we deal out justice. It's not simple. It's never, it never is. And you rarely get a nice little bow at the end. Mm. So. Right. That was a perfect answer to a, a really you. hard question. Yeah. <laughs> like the way that yeah. Bear Brook season one wrapped up was like so perfect yeah. you're like all right bear book is over we might be back if there are updates like oh psych yeah. there's an update and I'm yeah like, did he plan this <laughs> <laughs> it's just so good <laughs> no you can't yeah you can't make it up in in either direction you know like, <laughs> that yeah the events of of uh yeah, what happened with the end of that first season were you know as surprising to me as as anyone else yeah <laughs> So this is a bit of a sillier question, but Bear Brook has been downloaded more than 17 million times at the very least since I last saw written down on your website. First of all, is it surreal to know that 17 million plus people have heard your voice? And secondly, have you been recognized by just your voice? I'll take the second one first. No, no one's recognized me by my voice. Weirdly, though, a handful of people have recognized me on site. Oh, cool. Which is... um, it was surprising. Or maybe not cool. I don't well, know. Yeah. It's, a, it's an assumption. It's radio. Like weird. Yeah. And I tried to puzzle through like, how did they know it was me? Did they, I guess they could go to the website and look at my picture or maybe they, we've done some live events. Maybe they came to one mm. of those. Probably that. It's one aspect of, of audio journalism that is appealing to me. The fact that I think by didn't, mere dint of not being in front of the camera, it makes you less part of the story. Yeah. And I like that. I think that's I think personally I like that for my own life. But I think it's I think it tends to make for better journalism too. Um it's just a little bit less of a performative aspect to it, at least in my opinion. Right. Is it surreal to know that so many people have listened? Yeah. I mean, especially after the first season, I didn't know if anyone was gonna listen, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. <laughs> There were times when I was making that first season, which was a very kind of, we went through many phases with how we were doing it as a, as a station, as an organization. But for a, a large chunk of the time that I was working on it, it was sort of like a, a nights and weekends kind of not like, sure, you can work on it, but it's not like officially part of your job description or you still have all the other the same responsibilities you had before, which at the time I think I was covering education and like the presidential primary so that was like, yeah, that was 2015 when everyone was like laughing and thought Trump was just like a funny guy. <laughs> oh, um, days. <laughs> oh, gosh. And there was part of me that was like kind of like a little embarrassed by it. Like it, it felt like an indulgence in a way. Like, okay, I'll finish my little passion project and then, you know, I'll get back to like doing the real news. 
the real thing, you know, and, and part of that was because there wasn't really like a blueprint for how to do a, a project like that at a station of our size, like up to that point, like narrative podcasting was like pretty much the realm of serial and, right. you know, this American life and, and places that were like serious and big and like national media outlets, you know, and so there weren't like, you know, we, we were doing like uh, shows that were like hour long, like uh, outside in a program that we still air. But in terms of like a six part, you know, series that was going to stand alone and be a limited run thing, we'd never done that before. And I was, you know, 25 and this was like, this was my first real job. I wasn't an internship. I think I, yeah, I I had done five unpaid internships and then I was actually arrived at New Hampshire Public Radio as a fellow under a fellowship. So I graduated from intern to fellow. And that's actually when I first started working on that story was as when I was still a fellow, I went to that, I went to that first press conference. So there, anyways, this is a long, long, long answer, but all to say that I had a lot of reasons to feel like self-conscious about what I was doing and whether it was going to be worth my time and their time as listeners. So it was, it was kind of the shock of all shocks when people liked it. Yeah. Was it um, a quick progression or was it sort of like it just blew up? Yeah, it was pretty fast because I can remember we released it weekly, I think, like one episode each week. And we didn't have all six episodes done when we released the first episode. We were still working on, I think, the last couple. You know, we're still waiting on an interview for this or, you know, trying to like pin down this detail, you know, because the case was still sort of happening Mm. as we were reporting on it. So I think we released the first one or two and it was like, okay, it's better than expected. And then it was like, oh, this is a lot better than expected. And I remember being at a conference, used to be a big, well, they're still around, but they haven't done an in-person conference since uh, the pandemic. Uh, It's called Third Coast. And it's, it's sort of where, where like all the radio people meet up, like all the people from like, you know, This American Life and Radio Lab, like all all yeah. of your like idols as like someone who wants to be in public radio, like this is the conference to go to. And I was at that conference, like right after we had released like the first couple of, of episodes and people were like talking to me about it and like saying like they liked it. And I was like, oh man, I got I to gotta work harder on these last two episodes because <laughs> <laughs> I guess people are actually going to hear them. <laughs> so yeah, I, I had a sense like midstream that okay, people are listening. Mm-hmm. Let's keep the momentum going. Yeah, you, know? you were interviewing during this some like important people. So did you have like imposter syndrome? Like, what am I doing? This isn't even like a high priority. Like, yeah, sometimes. I mean, but I try definitely not to let the people I was interviewing know that. Sure, you know, um, I you, just, can, you, you know, can tell us. Yeah. We'll keep it a secret. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I'm, I know, actually, I know for at least some of them, you know, they were like, what is happening with this guy? Is this, is this story going to happen or, or not? Because it took, I think, like three years from the first bit of reporting I did on it to the first episode of the podcast being released. And one of the main um, sources in the first season um, is this amateur detective, sort of online and in-person amateur investigator named Rhonda Randall. And she was one of the first people I talked to. And actually talking to her was one of the things that convinced me that this was um, not going to be just like another four-minute story, which is sort of what I was doing at the time. And she, I talked to her like in, I think, probably late 2015. And the podcast didn't come out until fall of 2018. Wow. And she, you know, later told me that, you know, at some point in those like three years, she was like, you know, what happened? 
<laughs> what's yeah, what are you what's doing? going on with this? <laughs> what are you doing over there? It's just your private collection yeah. of audio right. <laughs> you're gathering. <laughs> you're a collector. That would be like if we just held on to this, this right. audio. Yeah. Yeah. It's just for you, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I will say it is surreal for us, I think. At least yeah. I'm for sure. Yeah. Yep. Because I know I recognize your voice. Mm. Yeah. This is the first time meeting you. Yeah. Like, no, like I'm getting yeah. transported back to yeah. cer- certain words you say. I'm like, oh wow, that's very, you know, distinctive tonality or whatever yeah. of, of an episode your of your show. Your voice has been in my ears before, except yeah. now there's like, it's weird. Now there's a human in the room. Yeah. Um, so to clarify, does Bearbrook predate document? Like, was that a, a catalyst? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, neat. That's yeah. super cool. Yeah, Bearbrook was like, oh, this is a thing. We could do this. Right. Um, and if we could do it with this story, why couldn't we do it with others? So, um, yeah. gosh, we want to hear all about the sort of behind the scenes. Like, so we already joked, but for real, the the topics that you choose are kind of gloomy. Yeah. Like, how do you choose stories? Like, why Bear Brook? Yeah. It's the hardest part to do. And it's the hardest part to talk about. It's a little bit of, you know, when you find it. Yeah. Mm. But, you know, in general, I think it's, and these are very broad ideas, but I think it's it's something that feels important to me, that feels new, that I don't think people already know about. Or if yeah. they know about it, they only have like a sort of surface level understanding, but there's like so much more that you should know. And in a more like technical or pragmatic way, generally speaking, to do these narrative series, you need to be following. It really helps to be following something that is unfolding in real time where there's an outcome that you know is going to happen, but it has not happened yet. Yeah. Like a lot of people will pitch to us, why don't you do a, a podcast about the Pam Smart trial? Right. And part of the reason I don't want to is because it already happened. I don't want to do it like a history podcast. I want to cover things that are happening right now that feel a little more urgent. And it frankly just makes for more more interesting storytelling because that's where the tension and the drama and the interest uh, comes from, which I can then use to keep you invested in the story. And then while you're there, I can maybe teach you about some things, whether it's genetic genealogy and why there's interesting concerns about it or it's false confessions and why it's a lot easier than you might think to to falsely confess so i kind of think of it as like maybe trick is not too strong a word or manipulate is not too strong a word but i want i want to make you care with with Mm. people and and a narrative a true narrative but have some kind of higher idea or concept that i want to make you think about not necessarily like teach you a specific lesson. I think that really turns me off as a listener. But I think if I can draw you in with a juicy like narrative of, you know, what's going to happen next. And you don't realize that you're maybe thinking about like really profound ideas like, well, how do we know that anything is true? (laughs) (laughs) Then then I've succeeded. That's what I want. I think that's great for working on a subject that's ongoing in that it's really easy. And you'll see this in like the comments on WMUR, like people just make assertive snap judgments based on little to no information without thinking about all that encompasses around someone when they're on trial or when Mm -hmm. they're being faced with, you know, certain situations. And so in a lot of what you do, you're painting the humanity of someone Mm -hmm. and the, and the real you know, not black and white of what a situation is. And it gets people to think deeper, but then also hopefully to not pass such quick judgments. Mm. Right. 
Yeah, that's, I think that's, yeah, that's probably a through line through a lot of my work that I, I don't even like explicitly articulate to myself, mm. but I think that's, that's definitely something that I care about. And it's one of the things that long form and particularly audio journalism can do, I think better than anything else is foreground the, the humanity of people and um, really make you care about individuals in a way that I, I think other mediums struggle to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I really like too that the stories are a little bit less well known. Like not not covering Pam Smart makes sense to me because yeah. that's a story that everybody's read about, right. everybody knows already. And people kinda knew Bear Brook, but like I never would have heard of Jason Carroll. That was mm. not a story that was on my radar at all. Mm. So maybe that's, that's, that's maybe that's part age too. Like maybe people did know about that story. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think yeah, for a certain generation in New Hampshire. But yeah, it's but yeah, I think it's important to know that that today because it's not like it's just a thing that happened back then it's a thing that's actively happening right now i mean if this person was wrongfully convicted he is he's actively being harmed by being Mm -hmm. incarcerated so it's it's not like just a thing that exists in the past so with the topics that you're covering there is there an emotional weight that you've had to navigate or compartmentalize in association with telling stories that are typically kind of tragic events does that impact you as a storyteller yes yeah yes (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I can't I can't imagine it. It wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, it It just yeah. a lot of people have different skills as far as compartmentalization goes. Yep. And I thought about what it would be like to be in a position that you're in. And it really hits me that how hard that must be. So is that something that you have to kind of balance or pull back when you're when you're telling a story to make sure that your own biases or, or emotions aren't coming into play? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and thank you for saying all that. Yeah, it's something we actually talk about it a lot on our uh, little team, on the document team, because all of, like I said earlier, we, we do joke about, like, maybe let's do a story where everyone's happy. <laughs> um, but the joke comes from this place of, like, a lot of vicarious trauma we're exposed to. But it's not, you know, I also, it's not unique to, like, what we do or, or our our jobs. So I want to acknowledge that, you know, if you're a public defender, say, Mm -hmm. or uh, an ER doctor or an addiction counselor, you know, you are, you get this uh, even more. But yeah, it's something we try to think about a lot. We try to be conscious of in the the editorial sense, as far as not, you know, we like a lot of the people that we talk to, that we interview, you know, even on both sides of the same issue. Sometimes we have a lot of feelings for them because we're asking them for a lot in a lot of cases. You know, we're asking people to be really open with us and talk about really difficult things. And that creates a kind of intimacy. And so, you know, you do, you you feel that, you know, you don't want the story to to let that person down. Mm -hmm. That's a dangerous feeling. And that's something you have to kind of steal yourself against. And doing the story fairly is going to be the best thing you can do for everyone involved. And so that's, you know, there's a little bit of that that happens. And but that's why, you know, we have an editor and we we take the the scripts of everything through a group editing process. So we bring in other colleagues from the station to to hear first drafts of everything. So it's it's never like, you know, what I say is, you know, just Mm. goes in. You know, there's a there's uh, many layers of people telling me everything that's wrong (laughs) with what I did. That I have to live through. A joyous process. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking um, of collaboration, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, one of the things I like specifically about listening to like productions of NHPR is listening to the credits. Mm. 
Because I like to, and this is probably just like podcast nerd stuff and not like normal people, but I like to think like, I, like I imagine how it happens and there's all this collaboration because you've got yeah. a ton of like names to say at the end of the episode. So like, what does that sort of collaborative process look like at NHPR? You're all oh, working yeah. together. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of uh, working together. It is, I mean, it starts with, for us anyways, it starts with our little team of me, Lauren and Katie, and we are consulting with each other on basically every decision from story selection through you know to the very final edits of the of the script so we're you know we're very uh, involved in each other's work like every day probably the only people I talk to more than Lauren and Katie is my partner so that's like we we, we, we talk a lot and it's probably close right <laughs> yeah it's yeah they're not a distant second and third but then once we get to the stage of like you know we have a story and we want to before we even start like scripting episodes we we try to do kind of like a storyboard stage where we think about okay I think this is five episodes say and I think the first episode is about this and so I, I would start that episode with this idea or anecdote in this interview and we talk about why and then we'd end on this which would set you up to want to listen to episode two and we sort of kind of think through the whole podcast in that way and and kind of block it out usually on a big whiteboard and then we take that to a a larger group of reporters at the station and say like does this make sense because by that point we've already been living in it probably for at least four or five months. Yeah. Mm. So we're pretty close to it. We're losing perspective, you know. So we try to bring in other people and just be like, does this make sense? Would you listen to this podcast? Do you think you care? Like, do you want to listen to the next episode? Are we, like, missing something huge here? Are we being, like, insensitive in some, like, glaring way that we don't realize (laughs) because of our own biases? Right. And then basically we, we do that at every stage that follows from that so when we get to the first edits so you know i will say i'm the reporter on the on one of these projects you know i will write the first episode say which involves you know choosing the tape and writing the narration around the the tape selections and then katie will take an edit at it and then after katie's edited it we'll take it to the group which means i will actually mix down that episode so i'll record the narration put the tape in from the interviews usually put at least some scoring in it, some music to give a feel of like what it's going to sound like. And then we'll send that mix out to the group editors, usually like six or so. And then they'll all listen. We've done it different ways. They'll listen independently. Or last time around, we did it where we all listened together in the same room. And then they just like tell me, you know, (laughs) why it was deficient. <clears throat> oh no, they say, good job, Jason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Home run, no edits, right. yeah. no notes. It's weird that that hasn't happened yet. I'm still waiting no. for that edit. When Sarah and I, we, no each, we each edit the podcast, I do an episode, she does an episode, mm. and typically we don't have edits unless we forgot to bleep and a swear <laughs> or, you know, like the audio, you know, we oh, gosh. did some like silly track We're a little stuff. bit smaller yeah. than NHPR. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's different. When uh, you know when you're in a live conversation or a live to tape conversation, yeah. you yeah. want it to be natural right. and not scripted. Yeah. For us, it's like we're like laboring over each little fine detail, and so it's like, do you want everything to be perfect? Which is can be its own problem. Right. But then, um, yeah, we usually go through the maybe like two or three of the group edits rounds. So they make edits. I make changes. I make an, I mix down a new episode. I send it around again. They tell me what is still bad about it. <laughs> 
I'm being a little unkind, but I, I mean, a lot of the best parts of our podcast come out of the group edits, you yeah. Know, yeah. ideas that people I had. I, I can still remember like a moments from the first season, Sam Evans Brown, who used to be an environmental reporter for NHPR and used to host Outside In. He gave this great edit about the episode where we talk about isotopes, which was like kind of a weird thing in the middle of this true crime podcast to suddenly we devote like an entire 30 minute episode to like neutrons and and isotopes because it explains this forensic technique but it's kind of it's like a it's a heavy dose of science in the middle of what has been a kind of like noirish tiktok of a like crime procedural almost <laughs> if, if you want to think of it in terms of genre and for and what it, it's worth i love when podcasts do that oh great <laughs> well this is kind of what sam was telling me in the in the group edit because in the first in an early draft of it the language to pivot into that was kind of like now like bear with us there's going to be like alert lots of science coming up don't get bored you know that was sort of the tone of the language and sam was like darn it don't apologize for science yeah <laughs> that's awesome i like, love that and he was right because he was like well why is it in the story then yeah. Like if you're apologizing for it, like cut it out. Well, we can't cut it out. Well, if you can't cut it out, then like make the case for why it's there. Mm. Not oh. apologize for why you have to listen to it. Like make them want to yeah. listen to it because you're you obviously s- think it's important enough to put in. So. I really you're like kinda, that. If you're not, you're setting them up for an yeah. expectation. Exactly. Like, oh, okay, I'm going to be bored for two minutes. I can go like let the dog out and not pay attention right. or something. Yeah. yeah. Right. So yeah, there are moments like that that I get out of the group edits. And then there's also, you know, the frustration of having your work critiqued is, um, yeah. it's a tiring yeah. <laughs> process. And it's such a, it sounds like it's such a long process, yes. you yes. know, over and over yes. again. As an artist, I, I love critique, but I think a lot would be a yeah. lot, <laughs> you know? Right. Well, it sounds, it sounds overwhelming to me because I'm imagining for every hour of the podcast, you've got like hours yeah. of, of recordings. And mm-hmm. so you have to go through and, you know, you're working with things like timestamps and that kind of thing. Like, I feel like the organization of it would make me like anxious. Yeah, it can be, it can be a lot. I mean, uh, especially with these last two series that we did, um, the amount of tape and the amount of interviews, you know, with, with 13th step, that was a particularly complicated one because there were a lot of sources who were off the record or we were sharing their interviews under pseudonyms and keeping not only the like tape and the like storytelling elements straight in our head, like just purely from a journalistic standpoint, like every fact, you know, do we have that fact on the record corroborated? How do we have that? Right. Okay. Yes. We have it from this person, we have from that person and that document. And, you know, for every, every single, every single sentence in that, that story, you know, that was an incredibly rigorous uh, process that we're all glad is finished. That's a ton of responsibility. Because you yeah. can't screw that up. No, you certainly don't want to do that. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. On a completely different note, but I've always wanted to ask you this question. You make the music for the yes. shows that you host. Are you also a musician? Um, I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> you make yeah, music. That, so. was a, <laughs> that was a very like, no, but I play one on TV kind of answer. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> Do you make yeah. music outside of NHPR? Sometimes. But what's funny about that is that uh, sometimes I thought I was, and then I ended up using it for a, a podcast. So I was like, oh, this is just for me. This is just a fun little project. And then, yeah, I think in the last three or four years, I, it's been pretty much everything that I've written has been for work. Yeah. It's, um, but 
kind of because I feel like I don't have time to not make it for work, if that makes sense. Like it takes a long time to write music for these series. And so it's not always written like specifically for a series. Sometimes I'm just like writing music that I think would work in a, for audio storytelling. And so I can maybe, you know, there's some limit to like how quickly I can crank out pieces. And so I sort of feel like in between projects, it's a good time for me to like recharge the, uh, reservoir yeah as it were so i feel like i can't i can't waste time like doing Mm. something else i need to like restock the the music pantry is that sort of a like refreshing part of what you do like kind of going back to like the emotional weight and thinking about like Mm. self-care like taking a breath and being like i'm gonna make some music for the show (laughs) yeah no it it absolutely is yeah and that's one of the things that's been helpful in in the past has been yeah having a different kind of work to pivot to yeah that's still toward the same project but yeah is using different parts of my brain absolutely yeah. is it all digital or are you playing instruments too it's a mix as i've more recently it's gotten more digital more midi because of the the volume of music i sometimes need for like a six-part series or a eight part for bearbrook season two it's just a lot faster to use midi than doing like a audio recording of mm-hmm. uh, this instrument and that instrument part of that is just i don't have to like be able to perfectly perform the pieces when i'm writing it in in midi um for anyone who's familiar, you know, it's just, yeah. it, it's a software language, computer language for musical notes. And maybe I have an idea that I want, you know, some run on the piano or on the guitar. And maybe like in reality with my actual guitar, if I practiced for like three months, <laughs> yeah. I could do that. <laughs> or I could just type it in, you know, it's sort of like having a session musician there who can, who can just like play your ideas for you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, sort of for efficiency's sake, but also it, it expands hugely the the range of sounds that I can use. So like we had a lot of like drums in the music for Bearbrook season two. That's all. Those are all done electronically through MIDI. It's like clarinet. I can't play the clarinet. <laughs> I can I can play a piano yes. and I can articulate the notes that I want for the clarinet on the digital piano. And that's yeah, that's sort of how I I do a lot of it. The guitar though usually is is an actual guitar because the whatever the like wizards that are making MIDI sounds are doing they they haven't quite cracked how to make a <laughs> mm-hmm. guitar sound natural. Yeah, um, I love that. But, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of cool to see behind the curtain of it, you know? It really is. <laughs> it really is. So this might be a little bit outside of your scope at NHPR, but I was really curious when I, so when I was, I binged Bear Brook season two. I was on a really long hike, so I was in the woods alone, which like your topics do not really, they're like not really compatible with yeah, my I podcast would not listening. Those with your it's fine. individual hikes. <laughs> um, but you, one of the things that I was thinking about, because this is something we obviously talk about and other podcasts talk about, which is about NHPR's philosophy on having advertisers on the podcast. Because mm. I don't know if you know this, but when you're binging it, it's kind of a lot. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of uh, ads you're getting? Uh, it's the number of ads. It's the number of times that you hear the same ad (laughs) it's like eight hours in a row so i probably heard like the ad about the vampire movie gosh renfield no i'm totally gonna blank on it the one about dracula and how he got from point a to point b and it's on a boat oh my gosh 
So if you watch that movie, then <laughs> oh, I guess it, it didn't work. <laughs> but you're talking about it, and gonna, you saying I'm that Google is it. coming through our podcast. They're getting extra advertising yeah, there you for go. free. What, is there extra impressions? <laughs> the last voyage of the Demeter. Oh, I saw a commercial for that yesterday. <laughs> Well, I heard an ad for it, maybe approximately eight of them, while I was binging Bear Brook season two. Well, allow me to apologize for that. No, it's totally fine. I'm curious, though, because I know there are some podcasts where, like, we don't do ads because we don't want to, like, dilute the message or, like, yeah. we don't want to be... Like, I just am curious about, like, NHPR's philosophy about advertisers and podcasts. Yeah, I mean, the, the answer is, like, definitely above my pay grade, but I will weigh in nonetheless. It's basically the same kind of model that we use on the air. In the public radio world, we have what we call underwriting, which is it. They're sort of advertisements with restrictions on them. So, you know, support for NPR comes from the so and so foundation or, you know, BetterHelp or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, there are, cer- there are certain restrictions on the radio underwriting that I think are codified in federal law that has to do with the grants that public radio stations get from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And everyone's probably asleep by now if they're listening <laughs> to this. Um, but podcast is, it's so it's sort of the same philosophy. You know, we want to be able to support these podcasts because they are incredibly expensive to make. And, you know, we, we give all this stuff away for free. Mm -hmm. I mean, like you guys do with your podcast, right? It's not a real moneymaker making podcasts for better and for worse. And so it's one of the ways we try to make it this sustainable yeah. so that I can have the luxury of spending three years on a story and, and going deep on it and, you know, spending four of those months doing nothing but reading court transcripts and right. police reports and not publishing. It's still a bit of a new and novel thing and definitely against the grain of a lot of trends in the digital journalism age that we now live in, where for many outlets, especially small local ones, you know, the collapse of the advertising market for newspapers has meant you have to try to make up for it with digital advertising, which means generally like the more articles you publish, the better. So the push has been for people, local reporters to write as many stories as they can every day to create more ad space, to get more eyeballs in the ad space. And, you know, that's a troubling trend for all kinds of reasons. So the idea that you could just like give a reporter, you know, three years to work on one story that we're going to, you know, release in a podcast feed that someone could finish in one day. Yeah. It's like uh, from like a a sustainability kind of mindset, it's a tough nut to crack. And so the the ads and the podcasts are one way to try to make up for that, but it's not making us a ton of money. I'll put it that way. Right, right. I feel like this relationship between art and money is something that we talk about. It comes up from time to time on the Mm -hmm. podcast a lot, actually. And there's not really like a great answer for it. There's no yeah. way to like marry those things really well. That kind of just works. Support for your local, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah support please. your local creatives like NPR and artists and everyone yep. in between. Yeah. Yep, it's yeah. hard. Yeah, because yeah, I think I think we are all benefiting from the world that creatives or right. you know storytellers are producing, and it's making your life enhanced, more vibrant. You know the yeah. community spaces we live in. So if everyone feels like they have a bit of ownership in that. Yeah. And then they, everyone could chip in five bucks, 25 bucks, yep. whatever. It can make it an easier lift overall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's turn this into a pledge drive. Right? Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> Get some tote bags. 1-888-805-6477. Boom. In, Octo- uh. in a, early October, you're going to see your numbers skyrocket. <laughs> Whoa. Just gained a bunch of new sustaining members today. <laughs> so weird. 
Here's another silly question. Sure. Have you seen Only Murders in the Building? Yes. <laughs> and, uh, is it, what is it, is it like weird? Is it, I mean, it's not a public radio thing, but. It's, I only watched it because so many people told me I had to watch it. <laughs> it's really great. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what? I don't know. You know, I kind of. I was resistant to it at yeah. first. I watched it. I thought it was. I thought it was funny. Yeah, I liked it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Good. good. <laughs> I mean, it's it's all you know. Yeah. But I think it's they they have a lot of creative storytelling, especially in season one. You know, like the episode where there's no words. Yeah. Mm. You know, for example. Yeah. So yeah. I appreciate yeah. that show. <laughs> we don't have a ton of time to dig into your childhood, but we <laughs> we'd love to hear a little bit about our guest origin stories. Like, did you know that you wanted to be a um, podcaster? slash radio personality when you were a, a child? Yeah, I was a weird kid in that way. <laughs> uh, yeah, I grew up in Alabama, in the very rural part of Alabama, and I found This American Life sometime in high school, and it was a real kind of, you know, in, in the way that, like, some kids find punk music or find, you know, some art that, like, speaks to their soul in a way that, like, yeah. their sort of, quote-unquote, normal community is, is not. For me, that was like what Ira Glass was doing, <laughs> which is kind of a hilarious thing to say. So I was like 16 years old in Blount County, Alabama, listening to like every This American Life episode I could get my hands on. This was like the very early days of podcasting when podcasting was basically just like we made a radio thing and now it's on the internet. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, iTunes was really big. Mm. And I, yeah, I listened to like probably 200 or 250 episodes of This American Life by the time I was graduating high school. I was like, this is awesome. It makes me care about things. I learned so much. It transports me. It was like, how do I do this? How do I do this? And uh, the answer for me was to go to a liberal arts school and study philosophy and then do five unpaid internships <laughs> and a fellowship. <laughs> and here I am. Yeah. Is that uh, the trajectory that you would recommend to somebody who wants to be on the radio? Uh, not necessarily. Um, I'm happy to say that it is it is no longer kosher in the public radio world to not pay your interns. So we've made a good, excellent yeah. stride in that Progress. sense. Progress. So not that to say they get paid particularly well, yeah. but at least they're it's not. Better than nothing. One yeah. thing at a time, yeah. 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 Well, that's great. Yeah. I guess I'm doing what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I hope, you know, my instincts and tastes as a high schooler were um, <laughs> good enough to, you know, sustain a lifetime of it. We'll see. I don't know. Have you had the opportunity to meet Ira Glass? I was going to ask no, that too. No, I haven't. All right, no. Ira, listen up. You got to meet our boy, Jason. <laughs> yeah. Ira is a listener of Creative Guts. <laughs> Hi, Ira. <laughs> We make a lot of false statements on this show. Yeah, let's fact check that. Oh, boy. Oh, man. So now I think we're going to be downshifting into rapid fire questions, which is how we sort of ease out of the episode. We're just going to give you quick questions with hopefully quick answers. All right, I'll do my best. What is your favorite NHPR podcast? Oh, this is very this is a very uh, delicate question. <laughs> is is office, it almost political? Is there office politics? <laughs> yeah. Are to, your coworkers listening? Um, 
It depends on if I tell them to, I guess. <laughs> uh, my favorite NHPR podcast, I'm going to say right now, it's the 13th Step. What is your favorite non-NHPR podcast? Most of the time, I would say Heavyweight, which is a podcast out of Gimlet. that's hosted by Jonathan Goldstein. It's just, I'll, I'll talk about it for too long. It's just a great podcast. Check it out. Right now, though, I really enjoyed the retrievals from the New York Times and Serial. That came out like a couple weeks ago. So you listen to mostly nonfiction podcasts? For the most part, yeah. I Actually, it's hard for me to listen to fictional? S- serial. Well, it, it is hard for me to listen to fictional, but also the kind of podcasts that I do, because I'm not really able to enjoy them. I just like think about their structure <laughs> and how I would edit it and get mad at them doing things yeah. that I didn't think of. So I oft, most often I listen to like um, like interview format, mm-hmm. ones, okay, because it yeah. takes the pressure off. <laughs> that Creative Guts has a huge yeah. catalog. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> I you know it's weird. I we do this, and I almost exclusively listen to fictional podcasts. Mm. Sometimes they're like mockumentary style. Oh yeah, but yeah, like uh, the Black Tapes podcast is a mm. investigational horror podcast, yeah. and, and none of the people are really real. But I yeah, I like the idea of that though. <laughs> you don't have to like worry about the ethical considerations of the journalism. No, involved. you yeah. literally make up all point. the all, all the all the you know, things yeah. that they're researching. And, and it's funny because they had like bring the editor in to talk about this. And <laughs> yeah. I, you, and I think one of the guys, one of the gentlemen on it sounds like Riker from next generation. Oh, so. I'm a huge Star Trek fan. So perfect. The black tapes podcast. <laughs> it's Sold. really good. <laughs> Number one. Maybe it's that in between of like not cutting it up too much yeah. personally. <laughs> the emotional weight of the gloomy stories totally overtakes you. You have to choose a happy career. What would you pick? Oh, I think about this all the time. <laughs> uh, right now, it's, I, I, I daydream about making bagels. Aww. Because, um, like, bagels, bagels don't hurt anyone. Bagels are, they are only good. Purely good. Mm-hmm. And you work with your hands. This is all, I've never done this, so I could be, you know, I'm <laughs> totally fantasizing. And someone who's listening is like a baker, and they're like, what an idiot. <laughs> But in my fantasy bagel making life, you know, I get up early, I go, I make bagels, I do something with my hands, I create a f- physical thing that it like is it only brings people joy, and then I and then I end work and I go home mm. and I can't do work oh, at home, right? And those are and also bagels, and those are all the things that make me think about fantasize about that you don't stay up late at night like worrying about the bagels yeah right. but yes. you gotta get up early to make the bagels that's true that's true <laughs> i trade it what's your favorite bagel everything and everything bagel mm. or every type of bagel mm. <laughs> important distinction <laughs> and everything bagel <laughs> all right uh new york bagels or montreal bagels oh i don't know about montreal bagels oh my god they're so good yeah, uh, yeah. fire has just turned I into know. a bagel <laughs> all Q&A. the rest of the rapid fire questions are going to be about bagels <laughs> top top side or bottom side which one's your favorite <laughs> obviously top no one would ever pick the bottom of the bagel <laughs> listeners comment which one you prefer <laughs> If you ever go up to Montreal, go to go to Saint Viator Bagels. They're like crispy on the outside and like like lighter on the inside okay. than like in New York. But yeah. they're they're amazing. They're fantastic. Right, cool. I love them a lot. <laughs> it's very serious. <laughs> What's your favorite color? Right now, it's uh, green. What's your favorite scent? The smell of leaves in the in the lawn in the fall. <sighs> 
That's a great answer. Thank you for resisting the urge <laughs> to say, say bagel. I, I, I thought about it. Bagels and logs. Oh, dear God. What's your favorite sound? Oh, I should have a good one for this, shouldn't I? It might be harder. Can I be cheeky and say silence? Oh, absolutely. Because mm-hmm. it's something I think about a lot in what I do. It can be a really powerful tool to make people like really focus their attention on the story. Because if it's sort of like an unspoken truth in the radio world that if like any amount of time, like greater than probably like a second and a half without sound makes you stop and wonder like, did the radio break? Yeah. Did something go wrong? Uh-huh. What happened? And I think there's something about the magic of that, like silence creates suspense in a way that can be really cool. And often like the most powerful moments in interviews are like the pregnant pauses before someone shares something really, that's really hard for them to share or something like that. So yeah. silence can be like the auditory hint that something really interesting is about to happen. Right. Oh, it's a great answer. That's a really Thank good you. answer. I think we've gotten silence before, but like not with the great sort of like narrative with it. Not yeah, just like, version. oh, I want my kids to leave me alone. You oh. know, like, yeah, kind of, yes, you yes. know, like I need just calm. But yeah, I, I really yeah. like that, you it's know, great. thought process. Uh, what's your favorite texture to touch? My mother had a garden and in it was uh, lamb's ear. And when I was a kid, I was fascinated by lamb's ear because, you know, it feels like a little fuzzy ear. Aww. And I would, it makes me think of like childhood and my mom and that's a... Uh, it's a nice memory for me. So that's yeah, so sweet. What's the most inspiring location you've traveled to? Uh, well, I just got back a few weeks ago from Copenhagen, and uh, that was like the, my favorite city I've ever been to. Wow, so cool! I'm gonna say Copenhagen. What's the last new thing you've learned? That there's a bagel in Montreal. <laughs> <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> Such a good answer. Uh, and this is our clincher question. If you could go back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Nothing. He needs to figure it out for himself. Mm. And, you know, learn and grow from that. I think that's the first time we've received that answer. I know. I know. Which is really awesome. I'm well, younger Jason Moon seemed to have nailed it, so. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. <laughs> All those unpaid internships yeah. paid off. <laughs> Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Thank you. This was a fascinating conversation. It was really, really Thank enjoyable. You. And yeah. again, surreal, but awesome to hear your voice while looking at you <laughs> yeah. in person. Well, when I reached out, I was like, he's probably not even going to respond to me. Like, I just like. <laughs> and then there was the message. Um, oh, my God. She said yes. Oh, I was like, Jason okay. said yes. So like, I guess we have to interview him now. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you again, Jason. And with that, show Show us your creative guts. Another huge thank you to Jason Moon for joining us on Creative Guts. What an enthralling conversation. It was fascinating to hear the behind the scenes of the NHPR podcasts that have hit us hard. And Jason's motivation behind what he does is really touching. He's so thoughtful about how he approaches his work and what he delivers to our ears, minds, and hearts. Thank you, Jason, for sharing all of that with us and for what you do through your work at NHPR. This episode felt like such a long time coming since Laura and I have been talking about inviting Jason on the podcast forever. We promised not to to sort of like swoon too much in the conclusion. So we're not going to. I'm just going to say I'm such a big fan of NHPR and Document and Bear Brook and the work that Jason and others do. And it felt really special to go behind the scenes and learn about the process and the collaboration, the emotional toll and the music. I hope that he really does think of us next time he eats a bagel. And I hope that Ira Glass is listening. If you want to check out Jason's work, you can go to Bear Brook Podcast 
podcast.com. You can also go to NHPR's website and find everything that the document team at NHPR produces. As always, you can find those links and more in the episode description and on our website, creativegutspodcast.com. You will find us on Facebook and Instagram at Creative Guts Podcast. This episode is sponsored in part by the Rochester Museum of Fine Arts. Thank you to our friends in Rochester for their support of the show. And a big thank you to Art Up Front Street for providing a space where Creative Guts can record. If you love listening and want to support Creative Guts, you can make a donation, leave us a review, interact with our content on social media, purchase some merch, whatever you're able to do. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode of Creative Guts. Are you famous now? But I didn't know if you were famous before. I'm like, maybe he's always been famous and I just wasn't paying attention. No, it would be a stretch by any definition <laughs> to have called me famous before. New Hampshire famous. Yeah. <laughs> Even by those standards. Bootstraps. We're cute. We're spunky. Yeah, we are. Just like, um, who's that TV character that's known for being spunky? Hold on. Punky Brewster? Yeah. That's like oh! Actually, exactly who I was thinking of. <laughs> we're in sync. Ooh, weird. And HBR for people, if you're listening to this, please don't judge us too harshly.